Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, good evening again, everyone. Good morning. Um, I'm so excited to be here with my friend Fernando Castillo and his lovely wife, Karen, in the room. Uh, Fernando and I, were part of the Foursquare family of churches. Uh, he has planted a church in Honolulu, Hawaii, um, and uh, most recently has been the district superintendent, or supervisor, supervisor, of the Southwest District uh, in the, the LA region. So he's living in California right now. We won't hold that against him as New Yorkers. Um, but he's in town visiting, and so I asked him if he would preach and help us continue our detox series, and he graciously accepted. So, Fernando, thank you so much for being here, and uh, let's give it up for Fernando right now. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Pastor Russ, uh, for inviting me, I mean, to Brooklyn, New York. My goodness gracious, what an honor. Uh, I want to also thank the team here at Hope Brooklyn for your hospitality. What an amazing team. Um, and if this is your first time just being here or watching online this church, man, this is an awesome church. I recommend it highly. It's a great and awesome church. It's my privilege to bring today's message and, um, and for the message of this week. But before I do that, I would love to uh, meet my family. Is that okay? There's going to be a picture coming up soon of my family and their, their good-looking side, okay? And, and maybe is there, maybe not, maybe it's not there, is, oh yeah, it's awesome, it's right there, there you go, you see, I told you, I'm not the, the best looking part of the family, so my wife Karen, uh, we have three boys, uh, we've been married for 22 years, the best 22 years of her life, that's right, uh, so we are both from Bogota, Colombia, so we are Colombianos, uh, so we um, uh, met there, we uh, were born there, we were raised there, and we moved to the U.S. Uh, several years ago. We have three boys, Daniel is the oldest, he's 19, he's in college, my second one, senior in high school, he's 18, his name is David, and the little guy is four years old, okay, so there's a big gap there, and um, uh, it is an amazing gap, but especially my second son, David, you need to know this, he was diagnosed uh, with autism when he was about three years old, and uh, you can imagine the shock, we didn't have, I mean, we didn't know what was going on, and the doctors told us that uh, chances were that he would never be able to speak. So what we did was to pray, and we start praying, God, would you please help David to speak? Would you please help David to speak? And we pray that prayer for weeks. We pray that prayer for months. We pray that prayer for years. And it was about when he turned seven years old, then he starts speaking. God, answer our prayer. We just praise God. Praise God. God, answer our prayer. In fact, God was so good. We have to change our prayer to please God, help David to be quiet once in a while because he's non-stop talking. And um, that's how God does his things. But it's amazing to see the journey that God has bring in my, my second son, David, during all these years. We have seen so many miracles in his life. God has been so faithful to him to help him, to help my son to move forward in life. And now as a young man uh, graduating from high school, we know that God will continue helping him because God is always ready to help. Amen to that? Amen. Amen. So as you continue doing this message, a series called Detox, uh, let me propose that uh, one of the most tox toxic ideas that come up every time our society struggles and is going through a difficult time, it is a toxic idea It comes around a cynical question. And the question is, why is God not helping us during difficult times. Why is it then God is not helping us during difficult times? Now, think about your own life. Can you recall a time when you got in trouble and you cry out for help? I remember when I was 10 years old growing up in Colombia, my grandmother had a farm in, uh, oh, I know what you're thinking, Colombian, 
how to farm. Not that kind of funny farms, okay? They're, they're, they're with trees and, and, and fruits and, and good stuff, okay? So, so my, my grandma had in the backyard like a pond. Like, it was more like a muddy pond, okay? And I fell into that pond, and, and, and it was kind of quicksand, and I started crying out for help. Ah, thank God my dad was around to come and rescue me. Uh, hundreds of times in, in, as a pastor, as I was pastoring in Hawaii, I, I had several, I mean, hundreds of times people coming asking for help. They got themselves in, in trouble, and, and, and they would come to see me. They were anxious. They were hopeless. Um, they were disoriented. They were confused. They were sharing their troubles, their difficulties, asking for my help. And all I did was pointing up to God. Troubles in their health, uh, troubles in their marriages, in their finances. Um, we know this. Real, real life can be really, really tough. But God is always ready to help, right? God is always ready to help. And when we find ourselves in situations when there is nothing else uh, 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 to do, to go, and we are in trouble, uh, yeah, we cry out for help. And if we forget that God is there for us, we're going to look for other things. We're going to cling on to other things. We're going to trust to other things than God for us to help us. We ask ourselves when we're in trouble, who can come? Who can come to rescue us? Who can come to help us? Well, the book of Psalms has an answer. It's a beautiful psalm. It's, a, it's two verses that are so powerful. You probably have read it many times. And David cries out, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? No, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What a powerful statement. Our help comes from the Lord. But if we are honest, okay, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way because it, it feels sometimes like God doesn't care or maybe he is too busy to pay attention to my problems or maybe um, he's too slow to come and, and, and for my aid. And, and if we're not careful, um, what happens is we pick up that toxic idea that we need to do something to call God's attention, that we need to perform. We need, maybe we need to do something so, so we can get... God's attention and, see, and he can come to our help. Now, I'm not sure about you, but for me, it's easy to entertain those kinds of ideas. What do I need to do to get God's help? Can anybody relate to that? Anybody in the couch over there? Anybody? Many of us can relate to that. Now, let's detox from that. Okay? And I have good news for you. Because God is always, always faithful and ready to help us in our time of need. In the scriptures, when you read it from all the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, you will see the same pattern that is weaved in the, in the Holy Scriptures. God helping his people from trouble over and over again. The same story happens in all, almost every book of the Bible. God's people get in trouble. God comes and helps them. They get in trouble, God helps them. We know that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we are ever in a situation right now where we feel lost, where we, we feel hopeless, when we feel anxious, desperate, scared, confused, and, and we're crying out for help, we need to understand and we need to know this, that no matter what, God will come at the right time to rescue us because He's faithful. He will do it, not necessarily at the moment that we want and the way that we want to be rescued, but He will come in His time and in His way to rescue us. Why don't you tell the person next to you, hey, God is our help. Tell them, God is our help, right there in the couch. Yell the person in the next room, hey, God is our help. That's right. God is our help. And I will take us to a passage of Scripture where we're going to see a very strong statement. It says God is the stone of help. God is our stone 
of help. And we're going to be inspired by an amazing uh, story in the scripture. It's in 1 Samuel. It's going to be in several chapters. But we're going to start in chapter 4. Before we read, let me give you a little bit of the, the context, the setup on this amazing story. These, the Israelites, this is after they, they left Egypt and they wandered in the desert and they're starting conquering the promised land. They have almost conquered every every part of the promised land. They still have some uh, spaces and they didn't, they didn't get yet, but they almost settled in, in the promised land. They had, remember in, 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 in the desert, God gave them instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle in the ark and Indiana Jones ark. You know, they remember all that? The ark, that box with, covered with gold and the presence of God was there. Okay, so they had all the stuff. They had the tent, the tabernacle set in a, in a city called Shiloh and in and, and that tent, they had the, that ark, and the people would come and bring their sacrifices, and there was a group of priests, there was a family that was in charge of the whole gig, and, and the, the main priest, his name was Eli, and Eli has two uh, sons, and Phineas and Ferb, uh, no, I'm sorry, he's not Ferb, some of you are laughing because you have younger kids, but it's Phineas and Hophni, okay, um, Ferb is a cartoon character anyway. But Phineas and Hophni, these are the two young priests. They were arrogant. They were corrupt. They had no business being priests. They were the worst. They would, what they will do when people bring the animals to sacrifice them to God, they will take the best part, right? They will take the best cuts of the meat to, for, to feed themselves. They were supposed to go to God, and they will also, they would like to flirt with the young girls in the tabernacle, and they say, what's up, what's up, what's up? And they actually were abusing them. They were like taking advantage of them. They were harassing and, and, and sexually abusing young women, and they were taking advantage of the people. They were horrible. And their dad, Eli, who is the main priest, he knows all about their sinful behavior, but he is incapable to correct them because you know what? He's also taking the best part of the sacrifices for himself. So he's compromised. Bad leadership. So in the middle of this spiritual mess and leadership mess, God brings Samuel, a very important character in the Old Testament. Samuel is different. He comes as a young boy, actually a, probably five, six-year-old boy to come and be kind of like an intern for the priests. And, and this kid is amazing. He grew, God, from the very beginning, God's anointing in hand is upon him. His grace and his favor is upon this young man. And he has integrity. He is not corrupt. And he will not compromise in that toxic culture as he grows Older. That's the context. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 4, chapter 4, starting verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. At that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. You guys remember those guys, the bad guys, the Philistines? Well, the Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer. Everybody say Ebenezer. Ebenezer. But they were near Ebenezer, not at Ebenezer. They're camping near Ebenezer. And the Philistines were at Aphek. Now the Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel. They lost the battle, killing 4,000 men. Big defeat. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked themselves, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? That's kind of weird. Then they said, watch this, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into the battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. The box will save us from our enemies. Let me take a few points here. Israel is camping again near Ebenezer, which means stone of help. Ebenezer means stone of help. They're not at it, they're near, they're by it. And the Israelites think that because God helped them before, because God showed his favor as they went and conquered the promised land, he's going to help them again. 
So when they lost 4,000 men of their army in the, in the first battle, they kind of retreated to their camp, and they're going to have a debrief. The team huddled, and they said, okay, okay, what happened? Come on, guys, why, why did God not help us? What happened here? And rather than looking for the answer in a self-evaluation exercise, some religious nut in the back of the room says, hey, I know what happened. We didn't bring the ark with us. We should bring the ark. The ark, you see, had become a lucky, a lucky charm for them. In other words, they, they thought then their help came from that wooden box covered in gold, not from the Lord. So they brought their golden box. And when the army of Israel saw it coming, they got all like excited, kind of like the football team in halftime in the locker room. Yeah, yeah, we have the ark. Let's go for it. Yeah. So they go to battle again. Let's read what happens. Verse 10. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought desperately. Second battle. And Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. What a tragedy. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. And watch this. The ark of God was captured. And Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. Tragedy over tragedy over tragedy. Now, when the tragic news, if we keep reading this story, when the tragic news reached back to, uh, uh, from the battlefield, came to Eli, the Bible says then he fell backwards and he broke his neck and he died instantly. Because the Bible says he was very, very big. He was overweight. The same day, as all the news come, Phineas' wife went into labor and gave birth to a son. She died while giving birth. More tragedy. The grief of this woman as she's giving birth is so intense. Before she died, she named her son Ichabod. If you're looking for baby names, here's one. Ichabod, which means the glory of Israel is gone. It was so much pain and grief that she just realized since the ark was captured and all the leaders of Israel are dead, God's glory has left us. And name her son that way. You see, this young lady was infected already with toxic ideas about God and wrongly thought that God's glory was gone after losing the battle, after losing their leaders, after losing the ark. Now Israel goes into a season of, of course, loss and grief and pain. The disruption was massive. The Philistines now are coming and raiding the towns in Israel, and they're taking advantage of the people, and they're abusing the people, and there is no army to them defend themselves from the cruel Philistines, no experienced priests to do the worship sacrifices, nobody's ministering in the tent, no ark to worship God in the tabernacle. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. So you may say, man, Fernando... This story is horrible. It's a horrible story. They're camping near Ebenezer, but they're defeated miserably twice. God did not help them. God did not help them. So if God doesn't always help his people, how can we have hope for ourselves, for our homes, for our marriages, for our health, for our jobs, for our church? For our city, as we deal with the aftermath of this pandemic, where does our help come from? And if he's not God, and sometimes God doesn't help, what are we going to do? And it was not long ago, I, I found myself in a difficult place as well, asking the very same question. Um, with not fault on my own, on my own um, I lost a couple of dear friendships, friendships that I treasured greatly. And um, I felt broken. I felt defeated. Um, then changes in my, in my role at, at, in the ministry, uh, they caused a major, major disruption, brought a lot of uncertainty. And um, on top of that, 
January, all my family got hit with COVID, all, all five of us. And uh, of course, I was the most miserable one because that's what we do, guys, you know, right? We, you know, we are the ones of, oh. In the middle, I remember just, just, just sitting in my bed, dealing with all this junk. I was crying, God, would you please help me? Would you please help me? I need you. I need you, Lord. Please help me. And in the middle of this anguish, one night, I woke up in the middle of this agony. Oh, God, this, please help us. I, I almost, it's almost like, a, I cannot say it was an audible voice, but I felt in my spirit that God was saying, I am your Ebenezer. I am your Ebenezer. Now, I'll be honest, the first thought that came to my mind was Ebenezer Scrooge. I was like, what? Are you going to be like all stingy with me now? And so I was like, no, no, I remember. No, wait, there's a story in the Bible. I remember reading a story on the Bible, Samuel. And I went in First Samuel 4 and I started reading. And, I, and as I started reading, I found some gems, so much powerful uh, words of encouragement that I hope will help us to detox from any wrong minds that could settle in our hearts when we face difficult situations. Especially when we start asking with cynicism, God, do you really help us? Are you really a God that can help us? And that question, in, our human, in, in, our, in the full sense of our humanness, humanity, we ask, why is God not helping us during a difficult time? That's the question right there again. Why is God not helping us during a difficult time? You see, what happens is, as we ask the question again, we often forget that God's redemptive chapters always come after the painful ones. Every good story has a setup, right? Our help always, always comes from the Lord. But very, very often this help follows a pattern, a sequence of events. One chapter is a setup for the next. You see, God's sequence of redemption and help looks more like a dramatic trilogy. How many of you like trilogies in movies, right? Lord of the Rings. Oh, that was awesome trilogy. I love it, right? Oh, I prefer the books. Oh, the movies are great too. Back to the Future. That's one of my favorites of all times. Amazing trilogy. The Matrix. They're doing a fourth one. They ruined the trilogy idea anyway. But let me, let me suggest that there is almost like a trilogy pattern of God every time the redemption comes. There's two things before Two events then happen. So let me see what happens here in this story near Ebenezer. So then actually shows that pattern in this story. Let me warn you, you will not like the first chapter. You will not like it. Chapter one is called the struggle. <laughs> the struggle is real. <laughs> and it is. That's the place of pain. That's the place of defeat. That's the place of loss. You see, Israel arrogantly assumed that God's favor and help was granted as an entitlement because they were their chosen ones. And based in their former successes, they felt invincible as long as they do all these rituals and this tabernacle worship and they have the ark with them. So they were very religious. They had all these traditions set up in their lives. And they worship in their tabernacle. I know that Brooklyn has a tabernacle. I'm not talking that tabernacle. I'm talking about that tent, okay? They were worshiping, and they thought that because we have these traditions and these religious exercises, we will be okay. But they were drifting from God. Their hearts started to drift from the Lord. Their worship was only lip service. Rather than trusting God completely, the people made room for popular customs of the day, the pagan culture of the day, and they worship other idols secretly. In evidence of archaeological searches and found homes during the time, they find, oh, this is a typical Israeli house of an Israeli family, a Jewish family, but look what happens. They find the little idols hidden 
in places. The spiritual leaders, as we read, they were immoral, they were corrupt, they were complacent. As uh, Ross reminded us last week, some of them were put in pedestals. So when the people come to fight the Philistines, they are completely unaware how far they have drifted from God. They have no idea. But you see, God reveals his love to them by allowing them to experience that pain, that defeat, and that loss. You could imagine how perplexed and confused they were when tragedy comes in all fronts. I mean, they lost the battle. They lost all, all these people. They lost their leaders. They lost their power. They lost the ark. They lost their confidence. They were camping near Ebenezer. They were not at the stone of help. They were close to it. But they were far from God. They were near Ebenezer, but they were far from God, the true source of their help and salvation. I tell you, it's not a fun chapter. But the stage is set for what is coming next. Chapter 2. And I'll tell you, chapter 2 is not fun either. Chapter 2 if you're taking notes, it's called the surrender. This is the place of lamentation, but it's a place of repentance, and it's a place of sacrifice. Man, this, stuff, this is tough. The Bible tells us, as we read this story, then after this massive loss near Ebenezer, for 20 years, Israel was on a spiral of confusion and grief. 20 years. This chapter goes for 20 years. With a corrupted leadership gone, Samuel now as a young teenager actually starts to rise and his ministry starts to grow and they start leading the people with integrity and they become actually more aware of their wrongdoing. He's teaching the, the biblical principles that then what they knew what God was wanting his people to live like and it took time to realize how far they dr drifted from, from the Lord. They understood how they slowly abandoned their devotion to God by giving room in their hearts to idols and holy artifacts and religiosity. Confusion it started to turn into honest confession. Fake spirituality turned into sincere repentance. And there was brokenness as they made more room for God in their lives. And they started to evict all those practices, all that worship that was not right, and they started making room for God again. Watch what happens here in 1 Samuel 7, starting verse 3, so powerful. In verse 3, chapter 7, Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all of your hearts, that's the key, not with some of it, not just Sunday mornings and Thursday nights when we record the service. With all of our hearts, every single time. Get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey Him alone. Then He, watch this, then He will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites, you know what they did? They got rid of their image. It took them 20 years they got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worship only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all Israel to Mishpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mishpah and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. He says here, it was at Mishpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. This is the moment when God established the last of the judges that's a na cool name for a movie, huh? The last of the judges, Samuel. He was here when he was established as one. Mishpah is, in, is amazing. It's a, it's, a, it's a watchtower and really sends the image that God is watching over us. In chapter 1, chapter 2, when we think that God is not present in the midst of suffering, God is watching us. Every single moment, every single breath that we take, He's right there with us. He has never abandoned us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. 
Now the story started to turn. Chapter 3. Are you guys excited about chapter 3? Right? Everybody there watching chapter 3? That's the salvation chapter. That's the place of help. That's the place of victory. That's the place of restoration. And as Israel surrendered all their idols and, and they gave it all to God and they made room in their hearts for God, now they have nothing but God to depend on their help. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? Not from Baal, not from Ashereth, not from political this, not for this other thing here, not from this money, not for my job. It comes from the Lord. Watch what happens. Because they are very different people. They're transformed by this experience. Verse 7 in chapter 7, 1 Samuel. When the Philistines rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mishpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Oh no, they're coming. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines. They begged Samuel because they knew, Samuel, you're a man of God. Keep praying for us. Keep praying for us. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel. And the Lord answered him. Yes. Verse 10. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, just as Samuel was, I mean, even the, the sacrifice is not even ending. The Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. Samuel then took a large stone. Watch this. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mishpah and Jeshana, and he named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. And watch this. This is very important. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Up to this point. Very clear in Hebrew. is not from this point. After we did these sacrifices. No. God has been helping us all along. He's been there. When we were struggling, when we were walking away from Him, He was there helping us. When we were struggling and, and surrendering and grieving, He was there watching over us, caring for us. Not just in the chapter of salvation when He shows His redemptive power, He's showing His loving power in every single stage of the way. God was always watching over them. You see, the real victory that day was not against the Philistines. It was against their struggles and their weaknesses. It was a battle then they won. And they realized we are our worst enemies. We're sabotaging ourselves. We need to return to the Lord. And God saves them and sets them free from their propensity to trust other things than God as their source of help. What a great story, isn't it? Peter, Peter Scacero, great author, identifies the same redemptive pattern on a, of this trilogy with the following terms. You're going to like that in your notes. is orientation first, then comes disorientation, and then reorientation. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Orientation, right? In the surface, things are okay. Things are secure. There's a sense of location. I know where I am and what's happening. And things are good. And we fill our hearts with lots of stuff because when things are okay, we start looking on other things. And, oh, yeah, I like this here. I like that. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But you just get all this other stuff because things are okay. Then suddenly, disorientation comes. And that's when there is pain. There is a dislocation. You say, ah, come on, I was set, life was good, but now somebody moved my cheese. Somebody made changes around me. I don't know where I am. I am disoriented. I am bewildered. I'm confused. I'm baffled. I'm overwhelmed. There is a deconstruction of our self-centeredness when we are disoriented. And it's always to make room for God and to mature us from the inside out. Always. And then we come reorientation. Is when we find ourselves in a much better place than when we were before. 
with a new source of security, which is only God, the reliable one. See, God becomes here our only source of salvation, nothing else, just Him. That is where God is enthroned as our stone of help because has been watching over us and helping us from the very beginning. Now, in my personal life and probably in yours as well, I can identify the same pattern, right, of struggle, surrender, and sacrifice, and salvation. Struggle, surrender, and salvation. This is the way that we can detox from all the wrong mindsets, going through that process. As we go through that process, as we partner with God in that process, this is, this is how we, 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 we detox from these wrong mindsets. Now, I would love for you, if you says, yeah, I'm ready to, to do some detoxing, there are three questions that are going to help us to do And let me go through those really quick. Three questions, and I'm going to invite you to ask yourself. Three detoxing questions. The first one, as God pours his unconditioned love over you, what is he revealing about himself in the midst of your struggles? What is he telling you about himself? Because, you see, toxic thinking will cause our struggles to pull us away from God. Oh, God doesn't want me. God doesn't care for about me. God doesn't really pay attention. If I would be more talented, if I was a pastor, if I was this, if I was that, if I... No, no, no. But, but when we connect with God in the middle of our struggle, in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our discomfort and confusion, God will reveal every time. He will reveal himself as our Savior, as the lover of our soul. He will reveal the times we thought we were alone, but he was all there working the night shift. <laughs> he will whisper in your heart that his delay doesn't mean denial then when we fail him, he never fails us. Then when we evict him from areas in our hearts to give room to other silly things, he patiently waits for us to surrender to him so he can go back and take the rightful place in our hearts because he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Even when he is angry, because God has all the right to be angry, even when he is angry at us, his mercy always prevails. Let's read what the prophet Habakkuk confessed in the middle of his struggles. I love this verse so much. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. He says, I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with what? With awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did years gone by. And in your anger, remember what? Your mercy. Remember your mercy. The first question you ask God, what are you revealing about yourself in my life in the middle of my struggles? The second question is so powerful. As you detox all these wrong things, what is God revealing about yourself and the rooms in your heart you're dedicating to other things rather than God? What would God speak about yourself? You see, during this pandemic, you know, in my role as a supervisor and pastor of pastors, I've seen so many of my friends, pastors, discovering so many idols. For some of them, their buildings were idols. And they're discovering then the traditions that they have brought through the years, the crowds that they will meet every single week, and, and, and the preaching and all that fun stuff had become their wooden gold-covered boxes. And they rely so much on that for their value and for their source of joy. I also watch friends and family being challenged by God during this last year as their idolatry became so obvious, worshiping political leaders, idolizing a version of America, then somebody will come up with this is what this country is supposed to be people elevating the Constitution almost to the level of the Gospels, or the idea of social justice that was not really a biblical one. 
I have had so many conversations with friends that became aware that their trust for help and salvation was in their job, not in God, in money, not in God, in their possessions, not in God, in their relationships, not in God. So what about you? What is God revealing to you during this season? Are you able to identify some of those things you trust to help you in a time of need? And they're taking room in your heart instead of God. There's a story that I heard many years ago. So, very popular couple in this community, and they couldn't have children for years. Finally, they get the news, and they were able to conceive and have their first baby. And man, they were so happy the baby comes, and they want to celebrate with everybody. They want to, they throw this huge party. And, and even though it was in the middle of the winter when they throw this party, many people came from all over the place, came to celebrate with them. They want to meet the baby, and they were so excited as guests started to arrive in the middle of a snowstorm. Everybody comes with their, with their coats and, and while the baby's taking the nap, a nap as people come, the hosts are there in the door welcoming people, taking their coats and storing them in the baby's room. And all these people are coming and they keep using, they're so excited of all these people, they keep putting coats inside the baby's room. And when it was time to present the baby, they couldn't find him because the baby was suffocating under all the coats from the guests and came to celebrate with them. Because you see, sometimes we forget what really matters and allow so many other things that are not bad in itself take room that does not belong to them. What is taking space in our hearts? Now, even though I, I'm a guest today, I've just met you, allow me to be vulnerable for the next couple of minutes and let me share something that God has been challenging me idols in my own life during this season of struggles. In his mercy, in his love for me, God made me aware of several wrong assumptions and idols that I picked up during my journey, especially the last few years. Number one, I had placed my hope in other people to help me. It's good to know that you can rely on people, and don't get me wrong, it's good to have friends like that, but I put hope when I look up to the mountains, I say, oh, yeah, God is good, but I have my friends. That was wrong. Number two, if there's a name for this idol, I will name him Comfort. Comfort became an idol to worship in my life. Because, you see, in our human nature, we all make decisions to avoid discomfort, right? So we can be more comfortable. We want to work hard so we can make more money, so we can avoid pain and stress and get the things that we really like to bring us comfort. So one thing that I started to do about two years ago, confession time, I started to buy lottery tickets. Now, if you buy lottery tickets, please don't feel bad about it. If that's your thing, that's okay. For me, it just became an idolatry issue. Because I started to think, oh, if I win the lottery, I can do all those things for Jesus. Oh, I will be so good. I will, uh, I will help churches. And yeah, I will buy a nice house for myself, right? And I started to do that, especially when the lottery price went to like almost a billion dollars, because I'm not going to waste my money just in those $40 million price tickets. And I was actually normalizing that thinking. So in my heart, I started to carve rooms to trust people to help me, and also dedicated a huge room for comfort, for money and possessions to help me, and I was drifting away from the Lord. So I'm going through this struggle chapter. I'm going through this now surrender chapter, and I'm confessing to a dear friend not long ago, and, and I'm telling him all this stuff that I'm telling you now, and he goes, Fernando, I'm so glad you are aware of this. I'm so glad that you're confessing to God about all this. But can you please be a little bit more compassionate with yourself? So if you go in this exercise and you start noticing that you have some idols, believe me, the enemy of your soul is going to be there whispering, oh, yeah, you're, you're such a failure. You're such a bad Christian. You don't really do this. You're really fake. Really, really. At that moment, all you have to say, Lord, 
Help me to be compassionate to myself because you're so compassionate and merciful to me. And just keep confessing, keep surrendering. We often are so tough in ourselves, and this is so important because as you become aware of your idols, remember this. God is watching over you with kindness and mercy. He is not beating you up, so do not beat yourself up. Just receive his love and confess and repent. Amen? The third question to detox, and we're almost done. What steps are you taking towards repentance and surrender to make more room for the Lord? Well, in my case, I had to surrender those friendships to God. I have to tell him, God, I love these people. It's, I'm brokenhearted, but I'm giving those friendships to you. You see, rather than resenting them for rejecting me and for harming me, I have to come to a place where I have compassion for them. But I truly do compassion for them. Listen to this, friends. Whatever harm people cause in your life, they will never rob you from the wonderful plan that God has for you. They will not. I also had to repent from making so much room for comfort. It's not just stop buying lottery tickets, okay? It's also about trusting God, not my paycheck, not my ability to make money, not my role, not my job, but Trust God to provide for all of my needs. And he's been so good. What about you, dear friend? What chapter are you right now? Are you in chapter one in the struggle? If that's you, can I invite you to move into the next chapter to surrender completely to the Lord? Hopefully you don't spend 20 years like Israel. Hopefully it's only 20 days, but even if it takes 20 weeks or 20 months, just keep surrendering before the Lord. Maybe this pandemic is already pushing you to surrender more. You say, God, do I need to surrender more? Maybe there is more to surrender, but keep trusting him. Keep confessing. Keep repenting before him. Make more room for God. And if you're already in that chapter of surrender, let me encourage you that your reward is coming. Because God is always faithful. The chapter of salvation is about to start right on the next page of your story. As the story of God is written about you, you will be able to see through all your journey that God has been helping you all along, even in those painful chapters of struggle and surrender. He's been with you. He is your Ebenezer, your stone of help. And just like the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, the same issue. Listen, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. We're going to close with this verse. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I help you, says the Lord. Indeed, the right time is when? Is now. Today is the day of salvation. That's my prayer for all of you here at Hope Brooklyn. I'm going to ask the worship team to be ready, and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Um, one of the things that I love about this church is your constant reminding yourselves of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross as we eat communion and drink, uh, eat the bread and, eat, and drink the cup. Let's remember that it was Jesus who walked this trilogy of struggle, surrender, and sacrifice way before all of us did. He is the pioneer of that pathway. Think about it. We're going to be celebrating Easter in a couple of weeks, three weeks. Um, it's the greatest victory of Christianity. We make a big party. We, we do a lot of big things. But sometimes we forget that that's chapter 3 of the story. Let's remember chapter 1. Remember in the story of the Gospels when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's struggling and he is in pain and, and, and he needs help. What are his friends doing? They're sleeping. 
What is God doing? He's not answering. Remember? And Jesus goes back and forth between his friends. They're sleeping. God, help me. Please remove this cup of suffering. God didn't answer. He goes to his friends. Are you guys praying with me? No, no. They're, they're sleeping. God, would you please remove this cup away? Please remove this cup of suffering. He's struggling. He, he, he is suffering from this. And that chapter of struggle was not a fun one. But that chapter reveals this. Jesus can trust in his Father's plan above his own plan. That's what we remember when we eat the bread and drink the cup. We can trust his plan above our own. And if Jesus did it, so do we. After the struggle comes the surrender of his life at the cross. We talk about surrendering the cross with suffering and pain. You see, we know this. Jesus carries my sin, your sin. My idolatry, your idolatry. He surrenders it all as he carries it for all of us. He surrenders all those things to God and he pours every ounce of his life as he surrenders that. That is the sign of his broken body. Inside the cross, as his arms are open wide, is just the picture of his heart being open to make room to all of us that walk that pathway of surrender. To receive the love and grace of our amazing, redemptive God. That chapter 2, as painful as it is, reveals that Jesus can surrender it all to his Father. And so do we. And when everything seems so lost, when the darkest hour came, the scriptures declared that Jesus becomes the champion of salvation as he defeats sin and death in the resurrection. So as you eat the bread and drink the cup, as you eat his broken body, let that be the fuel that keeps you going through the struggles and through the places of surrender until you arrive to the place of victory and salvation. Amen? Let's eat the bread. And as you drink the cup, as we drink the cup together, which represents the precious blood of Jesus, remember this. God has forgiven you. You can forgive yourself, but also you can forgive others. Please remember that as we drink the cup together. Amen. Thank you, Father God. You're so good to us. You're so faithful to us. As we come to worship you, we want to make more room for you in our lives. We want to get rid of the things that do not honor you, the false places for our hope and our help. We walk away from all of them. We evict them all, Lord. We make room. So only you can reign in our lives, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.